We're here at Fortune Kit headquarters with Michael Judge from Death is Just Around the Corner. EIO. And we have we have one real quick thing that we wanted to discuss before we get into our main topic today, which is uh, we were talking beforehand, and Michael made a good point that you can't disprove that Yoda is six feet tall, right? Because we don't know how big everything is in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> We've got absolutely no point of reference. I mean, the, the smoking weed thing... I think, you know, given the time and place, you could maybe infer your own feelings about that. But as to the height, like it never comes out and says Luke Skywalker is like 5'10". They just assume you would think that. I'm thinking like, you know, Star Wars takes place a long, long time ago. And if you think about Earth a long time ago, all these dinosaurs are fucking huge. Absolutely. I think it's safe to assume that everyone is huge in that universe, and Yoda is six feet tall. How big is an X-wing? You know, we've we've got there's there's nothing to tether us. What's the galactic measurement unit? If an X-wing had flown into the World Trade Center, it actually would have been capable of knocking it over. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna kill Yoda. Whoa! (laughs) What? It was so long ago that he was alive. (laughs) I've had enough of him. If Star Wars had given us a scene where they go to Subway and order like a foot long sub, we could Absolutely. have deduced something from that, but they never did. Even, just, I mean, imagine how fucked up We need up to go back be. in time and kill uh, Baby Yoda to prevent uh, like the kaiju sized Yoda from stomping uh, our major metropolitan areas, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's another a possibility that Yoda's Yoda's three hundred feet tall. Yeah, what if Grogu I mean, was six Yoda. foot tall and smoked seeds? <laughs> that's yeah, what I'm we're saying. totally like washed up trying to come up with new hits that are exactly like. Our old songs. <laughs> it was, I thought it Baby Yoda was the work. same Yoda. <laughs> I thought that too, Alex. I, I was surprised to learn that it's an entirely different man. Are there? Yeah, me too. Wait, yeah. there are two Yodas. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a it's a different guy. It's not a young Yoda. Oh, okay, all right. It's Grogu now. Grogu. Somebody corrected me about that on Twitter, and that's how I learned. Because I was saying something about how Yoda was born on Dagobah, and then they were like, "Actually, <laughs> Baby Yoda was born on some other planet." And I was like, "All right." Thank God for guys who correct jokes on Twitter. I I love to be an actually <laughs> yeah. guy for uh, Yoda's place of birth. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> He's not necessarily native for the biggest franchise right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a baby Yoda birther. I think he was born on Dagobah. He's lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he and Obama were born in Kenya at about the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed. They both ate unsavory things. And Obama's about 22 feet tall. Uh, Yoda <laughs> ate those eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Obama ate the dog. Yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> they both have brushes with uh, cultural taboos around eating. <laughs> and they're both Muslim. We're talking about. And they're both uh, black. <laughs> we're talking about we're talking about Yoda's height, you know, and how it's impossible to tell. And people who are correcting you, Charles, on Yoda facts, but I found out a couple of months ago that there's a bizarre online community of Jon Snow height truthers. So the Whoa. actor, the actor who plays Jon Snow from game of Th- Thrones is, and I've seen him in real life is incredibly short. Like he is a tiny person. And, uh, makes sense. there, and there's a, there's a whole group of mostly men trying to argue that he's taller than he clearly is spending hours hmm. posting What's the point of that? <laughs> I, He's not even a cool yeah. character. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, He's always just feeling if, bad for himself and slinking away in shame. Yeah, if if anything, I would think they would want him to be shorter so that short men can also feel like they fight dragons and shit. Yeah, that would make a lot more sense than um, arguing for like another quarter. You've already inch. got Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. This the, <laughs> the discussions of morphology between merely being a short man and being an average sized hobbit are gonna like veer into race science pretty quickly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I fear there's no way out of this. <laughs> if you're talking about Tolkien, it's always not too far from race science. Yeah. It would be cool if um, part of the Lord of the Rings universe was that phrenology is real. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's always in the background, never really alluded to. Just, <laughs> just Gandalf kind of is constantly up. doing something called skull magic. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, he just reaches down and like grabs a hobbit by the sides of the head and the hobbit kind of goes, what? And then he's like, a, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> never mind. <laughs> It's funny that people reverted to that in the 1800s on doing voodoo with skulls. Getting a pile of skulls and doing magic rituals with no bearing on reality. It's been many tens of thousands of years since people did that stuff. It was, it was a wonderful bringing century. Bringing it back just like girls are bringing back astrology. Yeah, absolutely. The, it was a great century for like discovering shit like electrical phenomena, but still having no fucking idea how they worked. And so going like, I don't know, maybe if you do put an eel in a in a bath of water and then have it bite a telephone pole, it'll power the whole town. <laughs> we call this the ether. Yeah, that's how exactly. people committed suicide. In the old days, <laughs> the e that's how Socrates died. He, <laughs> he put an eel in a bathtub. Yeah. It shocked him. <laughs> Just imagining him sitting in the tub. The eel's not shocking yet. And him, him telling his followers, Just wait here, boys. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's how Jean Paul Marat was assassinated. Yeah. Dearest, dearest Mary, dropped in the tub. Dearest Mary, I grow tired of measuring skulls in Africa. It's so pointless. I shan't see you again. I am taking the I am taking the eel cure. <laughs> Goodbye forever. That's the part you never see in the death of Marat. The painting is that there's an eel in there. That's right. They bit his penis off. It was an ignoble way to go. <laughs> just imagining the the painting you remember that Corbet painting that um they th thought it was just a raw ass painting of a pussy for like 200 years and then they found the rest of the painting not that long ago and it's like a woman's entire body you know what i'm talking about <laughs> no so I someone didn't know about that someone got rid of all the parts that weren't that yes Someone literally like cut the pussy out and then framed they it. They cropped the painting. <laughs> yeah. And people thought for people thought for like 150 years that was the painting. And then they found the rest of it somewhere. It was it was in like a, a pawn shop or something. That's uh, insane. I think I think it was the early two thousands. And now I'm imagining that this it's the same thing with the death of Marat that that's only part of the painting and there's another half where <laughs> the eel's missing. A, a woman holding a box that says eel on it and the box is open <laughs> single single use eel it's one eel yeah <laughs> eel pour une fois 
So what are we talking about? Yeah, Beyond Yoda <laughs> and Eels. I was kind of thinking this episode may be almost um, a different angle from what we've talked about with Ramson in the past. Of We had that episode where we talked about how almost how like good music has no effect on politics, right? Of like, <laughs> there's really no um, protest song or whatever that creates any kind of material change in the political realm. And this episode almost feels like the opposite of also when you have like shitty government ops, that shit also doesn't really work change. Yeah. yeah it doesn't really work either. Yeah. Right. That's kind of where we're headed. And we did talk in, in our last episode uh, with the blowback fellas about, about, you know, the, the sort of music being kind of a bellwether of a, of a degenerate era in crisis, you know, like, like yeah. all of the country music that sprang up during the Iraq war and the ways that that music was then sort of weaponized against uh, the population that was being colonized. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, Charles, like there is no real way to transform politics with music as we will, as we will discover. Um, but I want, I wanted to talk about this, uh, Probably the biggest botched operation in Cuba in recent memory, um, which involved uh, weaponizing a Cuban rap band against the Castro government. So absolutely. So back in uh, 2009, a guy named Raiko Bozic, who is the former PR head for a Serbian music festival called Exit, and um, is an ex-member or possibly current member of Otpor, the, uh, Michael, you've talked about Otpor, uh, on your show before recently. Yeah. So. They, they are some, uh, devious motherfuckers who, I mean, I, you're probably about to go into it at greater length, but basically their, their job is to make, um, kind of soft power coups look as though they were democratic populist uprisings. Yeah, and they're and they're deeply funded and enmeshed with uh, American intelligence and specifically USAID. So, yeah, back in two back in two thousand nine, a DC based company with a totally benign name of uh, Creative Associates International, <laughs> <laughs> which is cool. which is which is itself uh, a USAID cutout. Um, recruited Bozich to uh, create what they called, uh, quote, a subversive rap and hip-hop program to promote democracy <laughs> in Cuba. Um, they picked a Serbian guy. They, they picked Raiko. <laughs> For yeah. the rap and hip-hop program. Yeah. And, uh, Look, they should have picked Diddy to rock the vote down <laughs> yeah. there. If, if you want subversive rap, I mean, what, what do we know? Okay, subversive pro-democracy and rap Serbia. Serbia, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, just check out this new uh, this new single by Mimi Mercedes. You know, like it's I don't know, I don't know. I think you know a lot of the reason that the USA AID guys picked Raiko was because they are under the, in my opinion, like incorrect uh, appraisal of 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 Otpor's work against Milosevic with music. They sort of see these rap concerts that Oddpour put on as, as something that turned the tide against Milosevic, which I would argue is, was totally irrelevant. It was going to happen anyway, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, that, that so, seems to, 
that seems to have been, from what I know about the history of Othpor, the the thing that sort of sparked their transformation into something larger than this, what should have been this one weird, failed, stupid episode in the history of, you know, the ex-Yugoslav civil wars and made them now into this group that basically peddles the idea that it can, um, you know, engineer soft power revolutions on behalf of intelligence agencies. It's like it, as you're pointing out, it should be noted that the original thing that they got credit for was completely fucking stupid. Yeah. It, did, it, it didn't work. They didn't do anything. No, I mean, you could argue that the, the, the big turning point in, in that struggle came when, uh, you know, like soccer hooligans started siding with protesters that was yeah. <laughs> that was a big shift. So so Ryko goes to Cuba and recruits this uh, group called uh, Los. I'm going to blotch this, but uh, Aldeanos, Los Aldeanos, and his whole operation <laughs> it's, is it's, it's Spanish for the Jason Aldeans. <laughs> <laughs> his his whole operation is is immediately made by Cuban intelligence, um, who then allow Bozich to just kind of bumble around Cuba for two years while they follow him around and get the name, you know, number, all the documents from everyone he is dealing with. He's just exposing this whole network for them. Um, yeah. They eventually bust him and, and like by proxy, they bust this other bigger operation uh, that USAID is is running, which is something called Zunzenyo, which was supposed yes. to be Cuban Twitter. So Bozich is kind of responsible for the Cuban Twitter operation getting blown, you know? Yeah, and, th- and that was actually arguably the major part of this in that they were really, uh, because of the role that social media played in the Arab Spring, people like the CIA were all hype about the idea that, you know, you could um, essentially engineer a fake popular uprising using social media and make it look like, you know, have government organized, foreign government organized, that is, uh, demonstrations and shit, you know, backed by armed members of breakaway parties or whatever in various countries, but make them look like they were somebody on Twitter just going, Hey guys, the shit is going down, (laughs) go to this address, you know? And, and you could see that, um, as I have talked about on my show, some, they tried to do the exact same thing in, uh, Bolivia really recently. And even the, one of the offshoots of old Porter picked this girl, named, uh, I believe it's uh, Janisa Dazavaca, to be like the fake... They tried to make her like the Greta Thunberg of right. like the anti-Evo Morales movement and tried to make it appear like she was doing these spontaneous organizations of youth protests against the, the Moss Party and everything. And it was completely set up for her and all she did was you know retweet what they told her to. Yeah, I mean, it's probably unsurprising to you then that like... Uh, Bozich's other operations include uh, Tunisia, uh, right, be- yeah. right before Arab Spring, uh, Lebanon, Zimbabwe, and then most recently, because none of these motherfuckers ever like pay for what they do or suffer any consequences, Bozich popped up two years after he blew this operation in Ukraine, in Kharkiv, uh, at of a music course. festival called Plan B giving a long talk about democracy <laughs> and the, and the need to uh, oppose Russian oppression online. 
So uh, yeah, what you're saying about how like you can't you can't fail out of that system is pretty much exactly like American bureaucracy in every other way. They're all just like Pete Buttigieg type of guys who are just going to bounce around from position to position now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, like you, it's, a, it's insane. Um, so, so the end of the end of this uh, whole debacle is is basically a festival that Bozich had put together, a freedom sort of freedom and democracy festival, is completely appropriated by the Cuban state. They turn it into a music festival, you know, that they run and they put bands that they want on stage. So they kind of, you know, get him to build the infrastructure and then they take it over. Um, nice. The the guy who was responsible for um, the Cuban Twitter project, uh, Javier Utset, uh, gets busted working for something called OTI, which is a wing of USAID that has uh, in their bios basically limited public uh, visibility, which is never a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> and an operating budget of two and a half billion dollars uh, over the last like half decade. So he just kind of disappears and the whole thing just falls apart. And the band that they were using uh, self deports to uh, Florida and that's it. people <laughs> it's just all all the like right-wing cuban vote in south florida is made of either you know anti-fidelistas from the days of the revolution or bands that the cia has accidentally gotten deported from cuba <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally. are they still making music uh they are in in like kind of a limited capacity but they don't really rap about anything political anymore it's all very Kind of vague, and uh, they sold out like the Black Eyed Peas. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. They got their own Fergie once they were in Miami, and (laughs) all they care about is bitches, blunts, and bling. Now, (laughs) you know, it's it's that whole gangsta thing that I just don't really understand. They became gangsta. That's the problem. That's why they were deported from Cuba. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You know that that thing, um, Charles, that you were saying in the intro about how this basically this shit never works from one side or the other um i think it it that is true on its you know on on the most basic level but i think it in an interesting way can give us some um direction into how people like the cia people like usaid whatever um want us to channel various sorts of political you know unease unrest in that this shit doesn't work, but we have been taught to uh, oppose the fact, you know, that we're uncomfortable, unhappy, you know, that we live in materially horrible fucking conditions with just sort of these nebulous mass manifestations of which music is often kind of the organizing principle. And you see something like, you know, Euromaidan, everything in Ukraine. Obviously, that's a massively complicated topic and we can't get into every part of that now. But the idea that just sort of like, yeah, take over a, you know, a square and hold it for a while and uh, then the government will be better. You know, the the idea that that's what political unrest should translate into as action uh, really leaves the back door open in Ukraine for, you know, either really one kind of Nazi or the other, either, you know, American backed CIA Nazis or uh, a Nazi might not be precisely the right word to describe what the Russians want to do there, but it's not good. Um, 
And the fact that we have been using this kind of like music festival plus, you know, mass gathering format for so long, even though none of those have worked in themselves to achieve what they wanted to achieve, I think you could argue that the fact that we keep doing this shit is a victory for people who don't want anything to actually work. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. When you frame it that way too, it just made me think that like a music festival has the appearance of getting a lot of bodies out into the street, right? Like there is like the superficial element to a music festival or like some big event like that, that looks like political action, but isn't. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and the way that music festivals are, this is getting, um, a little less true uh, as time goes on, but the way that, especially in the earlier days of something like, say, Lollapalooza, looked kind of handmade, looked as if people were, you know, starting a, a little fucking community in Grant Park or whatever. You know, that it's it's absurd to think that was actually what was happening. Of course, they've got fucking millions of dollars of sound and lighting equipment and corporate sponsors all over the motherfucker, but, yeah. but it, it gives the the illusion i mean i remember hearing people walking around festivals because i was um stuck with the the festival beat for like a year when i was a music critic and i'm never going to another festival for the rest of my life after that oh man and, that sounds terrible <laughs> it, 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 it was so fucking bad and at every one you would hear completely earnest like 20 year olds walking around going like it's like it's like we formed a whole different society here. It's like this is this is like a vision of how society could be. Oh man, and, you know, dirty and <laughs> nasty and crowded. Yeah, eight dollar water. Eight dollar water. Yes, yeah. exactly. It is a vision of how society could be, and yeah. and one and of the more sucks. sort of like yeah, well, one of the more kind of disturbing moments in understanding like crowd dynamics in my sort of political education was going to Lollapalooza in 2008 because I was covering it and um, someone on the second day I don't fucking know who started the rumor that Barack Obama was going to show up and <laughs> and yeah Sweet. and like give a speech yeah oh totally I mean Lollapalooza in 2008 is exactly what Barack Obama actually stands for it, it would have fit in that way true uh, yeah that's a good having point. played yeah. uh, some of those latter Lollapaloozas I can completely confirm that that is true it is like a fucking neoliberal hellscape like yo it was it's so grim and and um in in Grant Park I can't remember the name of the street but um if you go out of the park on like its longer side on one side of the park, it empties out into like two blocks worth of kind of wide Avenue that then dead end. So there's, there's just like this, this blind turn right outside the park. So people at the end of the day are like waiting for Barack Obama to show up and he's not showing up and it's becoming clearer and more obvious uh, that nothing's going to happen. So people start filtering out into this little blind alley and there are thousands of fucking people. And you can tell like they think they're in a rage against the machine music video that they're like tearing their shirts off and screaming and shit, but they have no idea why they, there's not, there's not an actual motivation for any of this. It was just that they had wanted to be part of some kind of 
major public event. And it was terrifying <laughs> to realize, right? Yeah, like it, it was terrifying angrily to getting naked because you couldn't hear an Obama speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's oh, pretty God. cool. And and the the thought that fucking occurred to me was like, if I had a bullhorn, I could make these people do anything. Like they they are so fucking eager to like be on the news to feel like they were a part of some fucking generational moment, you know that. Uh, it's it's entirely the framework of the media event being filtered back into them. The supposed content of it, there is no content. Yeah, and I I think that's one of the things Obama realized as a politician, and that the CIA have realized as you know political architects. There is no con- there doesn't need to be any content. We've grown up on the form so much. Uh, we are so desperate to see ourselves included in this world of, you know, events of things that really matter of things that have some kind of, you know, landscape changing effect in American life or global politics or whatever, that if you just give us the shape of all that bullshit and don't put anything, put anything inside of it, that's fine. We'll fill it with our own delusions. Yeah. The, the way we filled, you know, we gave Obama eight years of basically people all over this country uh, excitedly going, uh, maybe he secretly is what I dream he is. <laughs> maybe he's hiding, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's funny. I was actually thinking <laughs> about all, that specifically with Obama recently. Of um, You know, like 2008 was the first time I could vote. So it was like a fool me once, uh, shame on you kind of thing, where, you know, 08, I was super excited to vote for Obama, you know? And yeah. then I remember th- I was thinking back to those days recently, and I was like, Man, when he would like profess how Christian he was, I would be like, "Man, I bet he's like a secret atheist and shit." Because like <laughs> to me, it was like, "There's no way, right?" He's he's just like saying that because he has to. But then you're like, you realize over time, no, wait, he actually is just an actual devout Christian. Like, yeah, that's the guy. He, like, no, I, he worships Moloch. Perceive- <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't think he has spirituality. I think he has some amorphous uh, thing, a cloud around him of spirituality and it changes from reverend right to islam <laughs> whatever it needs to be I, yeah, I, I, yeah like I, opportunistic yeah yeah i had I, canadian I, friends I of, who um who were really excited about obama's first term and then his second term and not unlike you charles were like you know they would explain away the christian stuff by saying well he has to do that. Like, this is how he's got to play the game. You know, that's how we're going to get shit done. And I, in my own personal political development, I feel like that's the first time I ever heard that. And then I've just heard it more and more and more as the years have gone by to to justify like like, way less charismatic people, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Like anyone I agree with these days has realized often through Obama that like, Oh, all of it was a house of cards. Like, yeah, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could have passed a good healthcare plan. It's like, well, how hard did you try to do what you should have done? You know? Yeah. I mean, fucking super majority in both houses and a gigantic electoral mandate. You know, when, what, what Alex was just saying about Obama and, you know, spirituality that when I try to imagine the inside of Obama's mind, I imagine it like when Tim and Eric do like a fake infomercial, and the, be- the beginning is them just saying like abstract nouns, just back and forth, you know, going like uh, community, beliefs, dignity, intelligence, yeah. <laughs> the future, <Hard> work. dignity, <laughs> honor, 
values. You know, just that. The I think he just walks around. Of our nation. With, <laughs> just a word cloud. In his yeah, head. that's what he. That's what he fucking is. He's a human word cloud. And if you search through, you know, the things that have pinged even the tiniest amount, you can find your word in there and manage to convince yourself like, oh, even though he only said uh, equality twice, that's what he really cares about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to Obama's credit, though, like he is on a like on a non-political, like personal level, he's a good person. And I would still absolutely stand by that. He's like a fundamentally decent guy. And that's what helped him sell it. Where then, like we we're like Dan was sort of getting at. You've had people since then in the Democratic Party who are clearly not good people, like your your Clintons and et cetera. Where it's just like uh, they have an even harder time pulling that off, I guess, because you can't even kind of give them the benefit of the doubt that you can easily give to Obama, because it's like, well, he's a good guy. You know? It's like they're yeah, I mean, they're not even trying as hard to sell it as Obama did, and they have less to sell, and everyone else is trying harder to buy it and believe it. And and it's just, yeah, yeah that's yeah. kind of what I feel like. Yeah, I think they have made it clear, like, wait, what we're going to do is give you a less and less effective version of the same thing, and the onus is now on you to buy it more and more. We're not going to fix it. We're we're just going to, I mean, the difference between, say, Obama and fucking Pete Buttigieg, and I, I personally disagree. I don't think Obama is a good person. I think he's like a, a charismatic sociopath. <laughs> I think he is Patrick Bateman, basically. But, um, <laughs> but the difference between him and Pete Buttigieg is that he's a charismatic sociopath. Whereas Pete Buttigieg is just yeah, a sociopath. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, even True. doing the cadence and everything, you know, uh, from uh, yeah, South that's what, Bend, yeah, Pete, Ohio. Pete Buttigieg is a fucking psycho, dude. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just imagine him, like, standing in a closet when in the dark all day until it's time to, like, go do a campaign event. I still <laughs> think Obama is, like, or maybe you could look at this in a different... I, you could frame this in a lot of different ways, but... I genuinely believe that Obama genuinely believes he wants to do the right thing. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, no, I think that's true. He, yeah. I think his brain is frozen into a certain way of looking at politics. Yeah. And it comes from the worst parts of Chicago. I mean, the fact that he made Rom fucking Emanuel, his first chief of staff, Bill Daly, fucking Arnie Duncan was at uh, Secretary of Education. Like, all these horrible, horrible people from Classic Chicago, Chicago that guys. he surrounded himself with. Exactly. Yeah. Like, that. I think that speaks to what his understanding of politics is. It was shaped really early in his career, and it was fucking extremely toxic, and he just stuck with it forever. But in his head, he's always done the right thing, I think. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think Barack Obama, um, I imagine him as the kind of guy who, like, out loud says, like, I'm going to go conduct a searching moral inventory and, and goes and thinks about himself for a while. And then at the end goes like, yeah, uh, made all the right choices. Like, I I, I do believe that he, he thinks of himself as as a man who was, you know, he rode the, the crest of this gigantic wave, but then found himself in what he will frame as a, you know, an impossibly difficult situation, even though it wasn't. And he did the best he could do because ultimately I think, and I think this is key to the kind of framing you're talking about. He believes in shit like compromise far more than he believes in any of the concrete goals he supposedly believes in. 
something yeah, like that war- is 100 that right he's an ideologue like, for the process not for any specific absolutely. idea yeah that's not even him that's a huge portion of the democratic party yeah oh yeah definitely i just think obama is a he's a uniquely a shining case of that because he had more of a chance than most of them will ever have to actually do anything but yeah that i think he in in his heart of hearts would rather have had the presidency he had than to get you know universal health care and end seven wars and uh, have people like angry at him some places where he goes on speaking tours i think maybe that was that also gets back to what i was trying to say of like he's a good person of he abides by certain moral rules he believes exist right like at least i did it the clean honest way and also in the sense that he's like not like a bill clinton style sex pest (laughs) and he's not like a trump style criminal you know what i mean like he yeah there's nothing you can really pin on him other than yeah he's not politics yeah yeah even though his administration sucked (laughs) 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 confirmed that might be his biggest strike against him in that uh he's a dog he's a dog eater i mean no one likes a dog eater (laughs) Honestly, but of course, once me, you cross over into like the more political realm, like, you know, he ramped up drone strikes in insane ways. It's like, et cetera. Like, I'm not saying he's actually a moral person, but when it comes to him as a individual rather than a politician, he is better than what you usually get in America. Yeah, Gary, Gary, yeah. by the standards of society. Yes, exactly. Gary Brescher yeah, I, has a really good description of him that he uses the radio Warner uh, host, um, which is. Obama is the master of assassins. <laughs> I always kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think that's exactly right. And I think part of what's unique about him, or not unique, but um, I would say perhaps unique in the degree to which is, this is true, is that he can be literally the master of assassins. He can be the man who expanded the killing power of the executive branch more than any other president in history, including George yeah. W. Bush. And he can seriously think to himself that he has a code that he abides by. And I well, it's, think it's like uh, only Nixon could go to China, right? Only Obama could uh, yeah, yeah, expand absolutely. the drone program. Like. I, I think um, in a lot of ways, I think if, if I were going to compare him to a president, it would be H.W. Bush. Because I think H.W. Bush was the same kind of person who led this life of just hysterically insane evil but in face to face with his god could legitimately say like i think i did the right thing and i always tried to follow my best <laughs> instincts you know i think he'd be <laughs> totally, telling the yeah. truth yeah and they were both yeah, chumps agreed, agreed. who mm-hmm. thought they were on top of things and got played <laughs> <laughs> that's true too. that true. is also true yeah so during his presidency, I guess, you know, like the the OTI, USAID, and, uh, and the CIA are cooking up uh, just terrible, unimaginative program, <laughs> like the, 20, the 2012 version of the exploding beard or exploding cigar, you know, like that's, it's, it's pretty cra- yeah, crazy absolutely. for me to think of how, like given how sophisticated um american foreign intelligence for like shit like murder and actual disruption got the soft power side of it became this degenerate marx brothers fucking farce you know like i don't know how that happens yeah i guess it's just end of empire shit but i do think thinking of like that cuban rap group 
It's like uh, if we want to create social programs in America that work, we just need to put them all under the Department of Defense. <laughs> like, we, like, like Sub Pop should just be under DOD and they'll get their budget like, you know, quintupled yeah, overnight. Totally. That's I was just thinking of I, that too makes me think that like uh, instead of the plan of doing Medicare for all to use Medicare as the wedge toward public health care, we should just do VA for all because <laughs> it's a troop thing. And then like that's the only way we're ever going to expand public health Are we health- not all troops? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody is in the army. It's just that like 99% aren't <laughs> active. You set up an enormous prison and you put no one actually in there, but you have music blaring from publicly funded bands into these empty cells. And there's an implicit threat of putting people in there and making you listen to the shins. <laughs> this could totally this could totally work in Canada. This could absolutely work in Canada. They have a CBC4 that's just a prison channel and then they build the prison and yeah, all the CanCon bands, uh, every bare naked ladies side project gets publicly funded broadcast it so the royalties flow flow back to the record label and then you threaten the public with putting them in there that's great uh, i was ju- <laughs> i was just gonna say that's also like a job they have a channel just for prisons i i think that was imaginary unless unless yeah, yeah. dan i'm wrong there actually is a just just for prisons cbc channel no we'd have we'd have oh, to build a CBC prison was. channel yeah <laughs> the structure is there like all the programming would be specific to prison like prison reality shows, prison dramas, <laughs> prison comedies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, and That'd the jobs great, program dude. for all the shitty Prison bands. cooking show. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we need to put more people in prison to make it profitable. That's the least of yeah, our that's problems, the, the my alternative dear man. <laughs> to, No, that's the alternative to doing everything through DOD is just doing it all through Department of Corrections of... Uh, if we just put every American what in prison, what if you build, build a wall around the entire country <laughs> with barbed wire on yeah. it and say that's uh, the whole thing is a prison? Society is a prison. Yeah, I'm open to that. Yeah, just zone my house as a prison. I think if it if it gets me good health care and shit, <laughs> I want prison zoning for for all residences. You know, uh, cruising back to uh, cruising back to music as a uh, transformative sort of instrument of political change. I, I do think, you know, just Michael hearing about hearing about your experiences at Lollapalooza and, and going through this, you know, like objectively insane story about a Serbian concert promoter <laughs> trying to topple the Cuban government with a rap band. I, I think the touch point to all of this is this inability to let go of, uh, of like a misremembered 1960s, you know, like, like I, I think it all comes back to that really. I think that's true. Even in Michael's example of like Lollapalooza, it's, yeah. uh, you're trying to recreate a Woodstock in however you can. You know? Yeah. But like, what if Woodstock yeah. wasn't a revolutionary thing to begin with? And what if, exactly. what if your generation didn't actually stop a war? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, like absolutely. When I, when, when I hear a certain kind of person who was not, you know, him or herself, like in any active way, a political activist, but will come out and say, you know, they'll be talking about like a certain Jefferson airplane album. And then the end of the reverie will be like, and we stopped that goddamn war. And, 
Every time I hear that, <laughs> I think like, oh yeah, so a general Southeast Asian war of trying to take over heroin and opium markets to encircle China that then goes on to murder untold millions in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and keep those heroin markets and flood both the United States and Europe with heroin from the Golden Triangle and lets us develop um, a gigantic, you know, nearly half continent wide torture and interrogation and surveillance system that we bring back to our cops and let them use on us and basically invents the internet in any <laughs> operational form. Uh, and, and it all went on for 25 years, but you know, great job stopping it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of it. You know, they, they got literally everything they wanted out of Vietnam. It couldn't possibly have gone better for them. And then we made them leave. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Yeah. I love, I love the psychotic, the, like the total psychosis behind the idea that, okay, acid rock in Laurel Canyon and, you know, LA and San Francisco was partial was definitely monitored by intelligence. And, you know, if you want to get conspiratorial, you could say, maybe it was amped up by uh, the government as kind of a distraction, uh, a kind of hedonistic distraction yeah. to keep people from doing real organizing. So you have that happen, which creates a mythology that reverberates back to the current CIA that says, remember when all those band bands, uh, you know, stopped the war? We got to do that in Cuba. It's literally like The Spike, that book, The Spike, that uh, yeah. was a kind of a fictional book about uh, Russian agents that then became source material for real life CIA operations. Like, yeah, that shit is nuts. There's, there was a period you probably know, like at the end of the seventies where one of the major forces for CIA policy became fiction written about CIA <laughs> shit Be so because, <laughs> because the CIA like secretly knew from about 1975 on that the USSR was like, they were having so much trouble just keeping things together internally. There were really no threat like on an international level, but of course they couldn't come out and tell people that because then all their funding would evaporate. And, uh, the, the whole team B thing, you know, that, that team of foreign policy people convened in the late seventies yeah. that ended up among other things, giving a billion dollars worth of, you know, arms and, and aid to, the Afghan Mujahideen, that was that was convened to counteract the CIA's internal report that like, yeah, the Soviet Union's kind of dead, but there's nothing really to be scared of there anymore. And so there was this really bizarre period where some people in the intelligence deep state world knew like, yeah, this is bullshit. Everything we're doing is based on nothing. And others were reading shit like the spike or, um, the one I, I come back to is, uh, what's it called? The Terror Network. Oh, by yeah. Claire Sterling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Classic yeah, uh, which, weird black propaganda. Like Yeah, that he argues literally every instance of terrorism on earth is the Soviet Union attacking the United States in one way or another. <laughs> like he thought like IRA letter bombs were actually being done by the Soviet Union. And cool. Yeah, and and fucking Reagan read that book. Reagan took that book really seriously, and it it makes me wonder about the the feedback loop effect you're talking about with that, you know, that sort of bullshit. Oh, we stop the war thing now. 
makes me wonder how much of that appearance is what the modern CIA or modern, you know, soft power branch of our foreign policy establishment really thinks and how much that sort of stuff is a front for something else they want to achieve. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I think you, you could look at something like the whole, you know, catastrophe with the pro democracy or really pro liberal capitalist, you know, hip hop group in Cuba and say it, it was a, test run for the kind of, you know, social media bullshit they would pull in the Arab Spring and pull in Bolivia and pull pretty much everywhere. Oh, yeah. People still yell at me from time to time because I, like, made a joke about her not taking it seriously in, like, 2014. (laughs) They're like, how could you say this about this this dead child? (laughs) This very very real person. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that was 20 fucking years after getting the um, the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador up in front of Congress to just completely lie about what, you know, Iraqis yeah, were allegedly doing. Yeah, it's a well-worn tactic, in, and in people reacted hospitals. that way at the time, too. So yeah. that you can could, you know, not ha- take her ha- seriously. You couldn't say she was full of shit in 2003. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Naira, that was her name. That's yeah. it. Um, the, so something like the... Um, you know, oh, we, you know, this, these bands stopped Vietnam or whatever. I always, to me, it, it's, it may not always be true, but it's always worthwhile, at least, I think, to look at an operation like that, that appears to be just a fuck up and ask what they could have been achieving by apparently fucking up. Because I think, um, or actually, I don't think, kind of know this. Via books like Legacy of Ashes, for example, that have the CIA's imprimatur completely, we know that they intentionally appear to fuck up. Like that that that's part of their their MO. Mm-hmm. They like the idea that, you know, the CIA is just sort of a bunch of assholes with too much money, um, really half planning things and never having any idea how shit really works and just sort of wasting everyone's time around the world because that makes it, you know, correspondingly harder for people to believe that like, oh, they murdered the Kennedy brothers and, and Martin Luther King, you know? Right. And, yeah. and so whenever they seem to just, you know, completely shit on themselves, I always wonder at, and in this case, I think you can look at the social media stuff what it is that they were really trying to achieve. And by the way, this is, I mean, I know this is a sidetrack, but the, the acid stuff in, in the Bay area and Laurel Canyon in the late sixties, I think is completely fucking true. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I just finished reading uh poisoner in chief, the Stephen Kinzer book about Sidney Gottlieb. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I live very close to the Allen Memorial Institute um, here in Montreal where they did, you know, a lot of their, initial MK ultra testing. And that's, yeah, it's, it's very true. It's very, you know, it's documented. <laughs> it's provable. Yeah. So. Jim Morrison's dad. W- was that the place where, uh, one of her favorite guys on the show? Yeah. Yes. Uh, famously, Gulf. uh, involved in Bay of pigs or not Bay of pigs, but Gulf of Tonkin rather. Yeah. He was the fucking ship's commander. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, um, there's you guys may have talked about him um before uh William Mellon Hitchcock the uh member of the very very rich and uh very CIA connected uh, Mellon family as in like Carnegie Mellon yeah um 
that he he was kind of the major force in transforming acid from this really niche thing that like you you maybe could only get if you like knew someone who was somehow involved in a research trial to a drug where you could just go up to people on street corners in 1969 and ask if they had any acid. He was the guy who really set up the um, manufacturing facilities for uh, Augustus Owsley Stanley and for Leary's whole operation. And he and his entire family were CIA connected the entire time that all this shit was, you know, transforming from like a research chemical into one of the more popular drugs in the United States. And um, I cannot remember where I read this. I wish I could give you a citation, but I know of at least one person who says that the, um, the electric Kool-Aid acid tests, you know, the Tom yeah. Wolf, all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. That though, those acid tests were part of, they were as it were half of an experimental procedure that the, um, the production or like the live, you know, concert group that put those on was on the CIA's payroll <laughs> and that at the same time they were doing the acid tests, they were also giving acid to controlled groups of people in a uh, completely quiet, dim, nothing happening, you know, uneventful environment because the real purpose of them was to see what LSD did in terms of heightening your perception of light and sound and passage of time and texture and all kinds of other shit. So they had a group that was, you know, being fed nothing basically. Yeah. And then a group that was being fed, you know, as much sound and fucking light show and, and uh, visual tactile auditory stimulation as they could be. And it was really indirectly the CIA basically made the Grateful Dead's reputation. Yeah. In San Francisco from from using them as the rock band. I think they were still called the Warlocks at that point. I don't think they were, were the Grateful Dead yet. Um, but they were the band that got hired for these fucking things. And that's how they got famous from being used as like the house band for a CIA acid experiment. Well, that, that kind of spilled over too into, I don't know if you guys remember Courtney Love's, uh, it was kind of dismissed at the time, but she had a story about her, her father experimenting on her with drugs and just like hellish childhood. And it was kind of dismissed, but then it came out that her dad actually worked with the Warlocks, uh, was part of that operation. And her mother yeah. uh, worked at, I think, Esalen for a while, like... Uh, and also oh, worked God. on an MK, and also worked on an MK Ultra program uh, affiliated program at a, at another university when she was younger. So Courtney Love's entire you know family unit was basically involved in this sort of massive countrywide experiment. Yeah, and as as Alex referred to, the uh, a suspicious amount of like San Francisco and Laurel Canyon, you know, a uh, subsequent music and also film and TV celebrities had families that were in some way connected to MK ultra and the manufacture of, of these new drugs and chemical weapons. And it's, it's, um, I, I hesitate to recommend this as a source because there's some stuff in there that I know is completely wrong. Um, but there, there's a book called, um, I think it's weird scenes in the canyon. Yeah, weird scenes uh, in the canyon. Yeah, 
Yeah. This guy, Dave McGowan, who, um, he, like the stuff he says about Zappa, for instance, in that book is like, it's, it, there is a whole lot of like, and isn't it strange that, and don't you think that where he won't say things cause he, you know, can't prove them basically. So he doesn't <laughs> right. want to get sued. Um, so like the stuff about Zappa in that book, I think is, is largely absurd just as someone who's, whose background I know well, but, um, he does do a good job of documenting, um, how many of like the birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Buffalo Springfield and all those people, like they had a weird, uh, commonality of, of military industrial and sort of intelligence backgrounds. Yeah. Like David Crosby's uh, uh, father was a, a aerial photographer for the OSS, you know? And, yeah, and like yeah. J- John Phillips <laughs> father, like he worked with John Phillips father on, on an operation in Haiti at one point. Like it's very, and then Jim Morrison. Yeah. It's very eerie. Like, yeah. Yeah. And a- aerial photographer for the fucking OSS was, that was how George HW Bush got started. <laughs> the same assignment so you know the idea that like you can put it down after that you know that you go someone's an aerial photographer for the oss oh and then he you know went to work at a hardware store like no that's not what happens to those people yeah (laughs) they they don't get let go and say okay well you got this on your resume now best of luck they play soft rock (laughs) <laughs> yeah. They exactly. stop a war, man. Their children stop a war. <laughs> Dude. They eventually become <laughs> studio musicians for Dan Fogelberg. They play that smooth California <laughs> sound. <laughs> Absolutely. Or like you you guys know about Skunk Oh, they talked about this on Chapo, didn't they? Oh, uh, Skunk yeah. Baxter. The Yeah. Yeah, the, this. The, the he was he was in the first version of Steely Dan. And then went on to be in the Doobie Brothers and has since become a, um, a like missile systems, like <laughs> big, extremely, you know, expensive and extensive, like defense systems strategist and shit. And he is in a band. Uh, it's one of the worst bands I've ever heard. Uh, with Anthony Blinken, who's about to be the Secretary of State. Oh, that's hilarious. And, oh, and, that's and so good. there is a recording of them on YouTube at the White House playing Hoochie Coochie Man by oh, Mary Waters. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We're going to have to listen to that on like a future episode or something. It's pretty brutal, man. <laughs> that's the reverse. That's I not w- them coming from a background of CIA. It's them coming from no background and then later in life. Yeah. Yeah. Becoming a company <laughs> man. That's so weird. Yeah. I, I like to imagine that the skunk Baxter saw all these guys who were into weird military industrial intelligence shit. It was like, Oh, that's what you got to do to make it in LA. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah, exactly. he just, he did Maybe it backwards. Steely Dan made him do too many <laughs> takes and it broke his brain. Yeah. And he just, just, Maybe they did MK Ultra to him. I can see that. Through yeah. studio uh, Like a non, <laughs> non-pharmacological MK Ultra via Steely Dan recording session. <laughs> yeah. Like, if, even as someone who likes Steely Dan in a limited way, it would not surprise me to find out that they were, like, somehow CIA connected. It just, it, it, it makes sense. 
just getting like millet military <laughs> hardware to record on like, the the smoothest yeah, the absolutely. smoothest compressors the best channel strips fucking aviation grade faders yeah the, absolutely they've they've got all the russian military spec 6l6 tubes left in the world and they're only in steely dance amps i wish that we would find out that like autotune is an op and like t-pain was cia that'd be that's great. his actual voice there's no effect yeah uh, well, i mean <laughs> they engineered in a way, autotune to cover up that that was his normal in a voice. way it kind of is was something gone wrong. Yeah. i mean vo- vocording like vocoder was originally designed to uh for for like code transmission and and disguising people's voices so oh interesting i didn't yeah, know yeah, yeah. There, there's a pretty origin of vocoder. there's a pretty great book on it called how to wreck a nice beach that's like uh, a history of you know the military origins of the vocoder it's uh pretty wild man everything fucking goes back to that <laughs> one like stray thought i have um from earlier michael when you were talking about like funding the Mujahideen as like a sort of anti-Soviet, you know, escapade. Um, another thing yeah. that's like, like beyond, beyond um, the idea of like the CIA seeming to fail, like in liking the idea of seeming to fail publicly. There's also the fact that we just forget shit publicly and don't care about the consequences. Right. Like once we like fund bin Laden. Absolutely. And, it's that like we just forget that we did that. America, like the American populace at large, doesn't care, and then we can fund another war against the same people that we empowered, right? Like, it's a very like Absolutely. cyclical thing that. Uh, yeah, yeah a, you know, I don't a, know, a million, a million times over. I mean, I think there was a brief period when Americans seemed to be getting some kind of. Not a very uh, tight grasp, but some kind of grasp on the idea that we were funding Al Qaeda in Syria to fight, you know, Assad's people, and we're briefly yeah. angry about that. And the you would have thought, or maybe I would have thought at a different point in history that once it sort of gets out generally that our strategy in Syria is well, we don't like Bashar al-Assad, so we're going to um, hire Al Qaeda to dislodge him. And then if that creates a power vacuum where ISIS gets in, well, like, oops, I guess, sorry. Um, that, you know, if if that had come out at a different point, you like to think that that might have been the end of American involvement in Syria. And in, you know, 2014 or 15 or whatever it was, that was just like a, it was like a two-day Twitter news cycle, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the, the idea of, of these disclosures... Um, being these massive world shifting events, and 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 I tend to wonder really um, the degree to which they ever were like in talking about the idea of this is a different kind of appearing to fail kind of, but um oh what is the guy's name the guy who wrote uh, the CIA is organized crime uh, and a number of other books about the deep state ah I can't remember his name this anyone who who wants to know this just look up this. I want to say it's Phillips, something like that. Douglas Valentine. He wrote the Phoenix program book, right? Douglas. Yes. Yeah, Douglas yeah. Valentine. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when we talk about sort of big intelligence disclosures, people love to point back to like Watergate and the Pentagon papers and the effect that they had back then, allegedly. But Douglas Valentine writes very clearly about 
his relationships with a number of CIA people who either became higher up after he met him, after he met them rather, or were already pretty high up. And he got to know uh, William Casey pretty well, the guy who helped run the Phoenix program and was would later go on to be the head of the CIA during the time period when uh, we were giving all that money and all those arms to the Mujahideen. And William Casey told him, the Pentagon Papers, this thing that you think of as, you know, this great moment and the truth coming to light in the history of the modern American state, that was a complete op. The reason that happened was that we knew there were about to be uh, public hearings about the CIA use of torture and assassination in, uh, in Vietnam under the Phoenix program. And so we leaked the Pentagon Papers. We told Ellsberg to leak the Pentagon Papers so that uh, the Department of Defense would be in trouble and not us. And no one would pay attention to all the shit that was getting said about us in court. So even these moments of, you know, supposed, you know, exposure of the truth and, and victories for, you know, all that is good and right and holy, I don't know if I really quite believe that's ever happened. <laughs> Maybe maybe we've underestimated uh, Ryko Bozic, you know? Maybe maybe the reason Bozic lands on his feet after <laughs> after creating like I mean, I was in Ukraine last year on tour, the post Maidan, post Autpour uh sort of shaking up democracy there. The landscape there is fucking bleak for young people, you know? Like like yeah. so maybe maybe these these endless failures aren't really failures. They're, they're actually successes by a different metric. Yeah, Maybe that I mean, Cuban rap group is about to get signed by a man named Pitbull <laughs> who's going to put them on top of the world. <laughs> and then how are you going to call that a failure? I'm watching this video exactly. of Hoochie Coochie Man <laughs> I, and Skunk Baxter instantly gets beat red the second his solo starts. But the second he starts playing, he gets insanely red. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. <laughs> that's uh, that's what they call mojo, man. Mojo, mojo, uh, mojo ele- elevates body temperature. Mojo is if, blood gives you a fuck. <laughs> He's got that mojo flush. <laughs> yeah. Chris Christie has some of the highest mojo we've ever monitored. <laughs> there's, you know, there, there's a chance too, Dan, what you were just saying that maybe this, you know, maybe, uh, what's the guy's last name? Raiko. Bozic. What was it? Uh, Bozic. B-O-Z-I-C. Yeah. That's to to all our Balkan listeners. I apologize, but Bozic is just such a like a dumb Balkan guy name, <laughs> and, and and Raiko Bozic, uh, you know, it's it's totally possible that he was chosen to be a complete moron. Yeah, you know that his his part in the thing was he's an idiot who's gonna fuck this up. Um, so who really cares? You know, he, he's got a background in doing this kind of bullshit music festivals, uh, to allegedly bring down foreign governments. Uh, he can handle that part because that part's not supposed to work. Like the, um, the, the shit we've been pulling with, uh, Venezuela over the last few years, which ironically has probably only been stopped by the fact that Trump is 
just yeah. too bored and too hypomanic. That's what I was gonna say. He's just yeah. so disinterested and stupid and yeah. lazy that yeah, it's too, like, too much work. It's been some really funny. Also, stuff. What, what was this thing with yeah. uh, Guido recently that that came out that like he he didn't like his handshake my, or or something about his wife. My, yeah, that that was my favorite moment of his presidency. He tweeted, um, "Juan Guaido." Debato O'Rourke of Venezuela. <laughs> that's, so funny, that's that's such a, it's such a good burn. It's completely true. <laughs> but I I bring up Venezuela because this whole concert bullshit. Um, you guys remember the episode where we the United States was sending what was allegedly aid, even though we wouldn't let them look at it, um, over a bridge into Venezuela, and then calling them like you know, uh, criminals against humanity for not allowing. Yeah. The and it was just after they had appointed like, uh, Elliot Abrams to lead it. So of course it was very reasonable to be like, Oh, we can't trust this. Guy. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, um, while the real mission in all this, of course, is to get rid of Maduro and try to make Juan Guaido the, the new president of Venezuela, they have Richard Branson fucking organizing music festival with, uh, it was either Otpor or one of the offshoot groups of Otpor were his God damn it, that's like, right. principal partners. I, yeah. Oh, that's funny. At, at, at the site of, you know, this bridge where they weren't letting, um, quote unquote, not weapon shipments across. And like, I don't think the CIA or the, the USAID or any other, you know, soft power or less than soft power intelligence branch. I don't think they thought the Richard Branson part was going to do anything. I think the Richard Branson part was, was useful cover to maybe kind of garner some, some credulous liberal sympathy, but also f something for the news to cover while the real shit was happening. I think, yeah. I think you've got to look at the operational budget of these things too. Like that OTI organization. Yeah on its landing page or like some of the papers I, I saw related to OTI, they are definitely talking about like arts development. You know, one of their, one of their projects was to build out a television show centered around the Cuban rap group. Um, but then of course they couldn't broadcast it in Cuba. So they're, <laughs> so they, they essentially took all of their television show money, funneled it through a Panamanian bank into Liechtenstein and then funneled it back and then produced really shitty looking DVDs, which they would then just throw around in neighborhoods. Hey, check out this TV show <laughs> cool. with your favorite anti-Castro <laughs> rap group. Hey, kids. That gets me back, though, to the idea that uh, if we want to fund anything positive in this country, we just got to turn it into like some kind of op where we can get $2.5 billion for yeah. it. And yeah, exactly. Just run away. That, that, TV, that TV show thing and the way they frame it in, the, in their literature is exactly the kind of boneheaded liberal shit that like liberals love donating money to. So they could take like an, an absurd amount Absolutely. of money, make make a cheap DVD, and then funnel the rest of the money into whatever nefarious shit they're actually doing. You know, Ex exactly. Yeah, I think I think the real point of that part of the operation, much of the time, is to garner a certain amount of public sympathy, so that you know the 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 American liberal has his mind made up that like it's good to get rid of Maduro and it's good to bring in Guaido, and then when you begin to, you know, expo expose this person to all kinds of other information, 
it is much harder to dislodge the kind of idea that like, but, but Guido is in favor of like free speech and rock and roll, you know, yeah. it's exactly. The, and you're right. That does make sense. Cause like it takes almost nothing to convince someone of something that they're not interested in. Right. Like if you don't care about Venezuela, right. it's going to take five seconds to convince you. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's of one of the really weird aspects of like the, you know, like being who we are at this, you know, at this point in world history is that because we're, you know, the imperial core, what we care about is massively important to, you know, everyone in the world, basically. But because we're also at the imperial core, uh, we kind of don't have to have opinions about very much. And so there, there's a whole industry and it's a huge part of the function of this soft power world. I think there's an industry in like just making people have vaguely an opinion about something. Just push them just, you know, six inches yeah. in one direction. Truthfully, they like don't, domestic politics work the same way. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's pretty much, pretty much the way that Donald Trump had any opening to be elected is that all people wanted to, all Republicans wanted to see him do was dunk on like your Ted Cruz's and your Jeb Bush's during the like primary debates. That was enough to like fucking escalate him to the White oh, House. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah, anything remotely entertaining refreshing in any way is going to stand out yeah like we are a society that is begging to make our opinions based on five seconds of entertainment so yeah it's not absolutely. hard to do to us that's where i think uh some of these operations are actually successful which is not like externalizing american soft power as like kind of a corrosive element against governments uh we might not like but rather like shoring up and reinforcing prejudice at home and you know the radio free liberty put out a series of vinyl records in the 1960s and 70s of like gulag songs prison songs and its main yeah. function was was to reinforce the fact that russia is bad and a police state and then you know as glasnost happened and into the 80s you saw it kind of mutate into hey, look at all these cool Russian punk bands. They have cool clothes and they love freedom and, oh, they're going to say something crazy about the government. Can you believe it? You know? And that, I think, is successful, but that's directed yeah. inward. That's, yeah. That's, uh, you know, it's it's it appeals to people's sense of freedom and rebellion wrapped up with music and rock and roll, which is kind of a dead concept. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think something like the... Something like the Gulag records that you're talking about is a perfect example of, of sort of the soft power strategy evolving over time and maybe evolving more quickly than the things that are supposed to be fighting it. Because I think in that, that time period, you know, you're talking about into the 60s, early 70s, they're thinking like, okay, a lot of people who are politicized, you know, against us now are probably politicized by like, the late fifties, early sixties folk revival shit culminating mm -hmm. in Bob Dylan and, you know, blowing in the wind and masters of war and all that. And now yeah. 10 years later, they're older, they're wiser. Uh, maybe if we situate Russian gulag prisoners as being, you know, in the same case as like uh, slaves singing, no more auction block, <laughs> they'll start to think of the Soviet union 
as the same sort of oppressive power that, you know, they identify with us and all these other songs. And we can, we can use their own sense of, you know, consumer identity against them by lumping in, uh, lumping in what they thought they once supported with the thing that they define themselves by opposing. And I think they, they know quite well that, um, the older people get, the more money they have, the, the more they depend on things like job security, the more willing they're going to be to moderate their opinions. And I think it's way easier for people, instead of having to go, everything I thought before was right. I mean, I mean everything I thought before was wrong. And, and now this is right. It's right. way easier for them to go like, well, I was probably a little too idealistic about the Soviet Union. Yeah. You know, and maybe some of the things we did opposing Russian influence in the world weren't all that bad. After I hear the, you know, the, the deep soulful yearning in these gulag anthems. And and let's completely forget and, and sort of obfuscate the fact that a lot of those gulag songs were either written or performed by, uh, people who were on, let's say, the wrong side of history during the Second World War when it came to Russia, like fucking Russian Nazi collaborators <laughs> were, you know, nationalist folk songs. You're <laughs> sitting there tapping your toe thinking about uh, Greenwich Village folk scene while a literal fucking Nazi's words are being broadcast out of your, out of your, out of your uh, turntable. It's exactly. amazing. It's incredible. Look. Look at the progress we've made there. It used to be, you know, Russian Nazi prisoners. And now in the Ukraine, you have your choice between Russians and Nazis. <laughs> Everything <laughs> is twice as good. <laughs> That's democracy, baby. Should we, uh, should we wrap it there? Yeah, uh, yeah. Michael, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah.